0: Uh, my favorite TV show ever is The Wire, um, but before I started watching it, my favorite show was uh, Lost. And when I talk to people about Lost, I find a lot of people enjoyed it, but they had kind of like a jump-off season. Like, oh yeah, Lost was awesome, but I, I you know, season three I kind of stopped watching it, or you know, season five they started doing time travel, I stopped watching it. You know, I loved all five seasons of it, but people jump off. Um, the Apostles' Creed is kind of like that. It lists a sequence of Christian beliefs. And at various points along the way, people can agree with parts of it and then jump off. Say, okay, I believe in God. Uh, Yeah, okay, maybe I can get down with that. But I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, no, I'm not so sure about that. There's various points throughout the creed where people jump off. It tells us that Jesus comes to judge. Judgment, you know, eh, jump off there. But I wonder if today we're getting to the part of the creed where most people jump off. Today we're getting to the part of the creed where we say, I believe in the church. Now, a lot of people will say, I believe in Jesus. It's the church that I can't stand. People say, I'm not into organized religion, right? I can do the Jesus thing, but not the church. I'm spiritual, but not religious, right? We talked about that. A few weeks ago, I quoted Gandhi, his famous quote, where he says, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And you'd have to be blind or in denial or something to not acknowledge that there are groups of people who, in calling themselves churches of Jesus Christ, who have done and are today doing terrible things. And yet here we are, and we confess with the church, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, which is, we'll see, a spiritual community, a new community, a gathered community, and a sent community. So let's look first at a spiritual community. The passage that was just read for us begins in verse four with an address to you. A lot of this is written in the second person. It's addressing you, God's people. But I have to give you a disclaimer. Uh, In the Greek language, what this was originally written in, the you here is plural. And one of the challenges we have in English is we don't have an agreed upon way to say you in the plural. In Philadelphia, though, the way it's historically been done is to say yous, yous guys. So today... When you hear you in the passage, I want you to think yous, okay? And I'm going to say that throughout the sermon and just try not to laugh too much at me. Um, So verse 4, as yous come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, that's Jesus Christ, you yourselves, note the plural, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So what's this talking about? Well, Christ is called a living stone. It says that yous are like uh, like living stones. And the user being built up into a spiritual house. Now spiritual house is a term that referred to the temple. The temple was a building made of stones uh, before the coming of Christ where God uniquely dwelled by the Holy Spirit. So God's everywhere, God's omnipresent. But if you wanted to have a personal encounter with God, you came to the temple, to the building. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, God actually comes to dwell among us. In Jesus himself, God and man, the two natures are united in his one person, so that he is the true temple of God, in whom the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He goes to the cross, he dies, he rises from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, and now he is a living stone. He is the temple that is alive today, never to die again. So what happens is, as yous come to him, in the language of verse 4, through faith in the message concerning him, that same Holy Spirit that dwells in him comes to live in you and to bring that resurrection life of Jesus into your life so that you are made like a living stone in him. And then as we come to him, we don't just remain individual living stones. But we, like living stones, are built up into a spiritual house, a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit, which means the church is not a building. The church is a community. The temple was a building made of dead stones, but the church is a community made of living stones, made of people born again by the Spirit of God through faith in the living stone, the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ. That's why in the Creed we confess our faith in the Church after we confess our faith in the Holy Spirit. So I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, because the Church is the community in which the Spirit dwells. And in that sense, we are a spiritual community. It's also why we call the Church the Communion of Saints, because the Church at its essence is a communion, it's a community of people. And now, if you have a Catholic background, I do too. Don't get tripped up on the word saints. Okay, I know it's St. Patrick's Day, so no disrespect to him. But if you're a Christian, you're a saint in the Bible. Saint just means holy one. And if you're a Christian, you're holy because Christ is holy and you are one with him and his Holy Spirit now lives in you. And so to be a part of the church is to be a part of the communion of saints. It's to be a saint yourself. The church is the community in which the Spirit dwells. And for that reason, The church is also an object of faith, not of sight. It's why we have to confess belief in the church. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church because while the church can be seen through the gatherings that we have together, through the practice of the ordinances, through the preaching of the word, through the people that are in it, the actual essence of our unity is spiritual. It is the Holy Spirit himself who is invisible and who lives inside of us invisibly. Now, I alluded earlier to the fact that the church has often looked more like, by the eyes, looked more like just another community in the world that's trying to extend and defend its power. And part of the reason for that is because some communities that call themselves churches are actually not churches at all. But beyond that, we have to acknowledge that there are true churches that have fallen way short of what we ought to be, given that the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of us. There's no excuse for that, none. And yet there is an explanation for it, that this passage gives us. Verse five says, that as yous come to him, yous are being built up into a spiritual house. Not that the house is already completed, but that it's being built. You see, what happens is when we come to him, We also bring with us our sin nature. And in his infinite wisdom, God has not chosen at the moment we come to him to eradicate everything that remains from our sinful nature. The thing the church, one of the things the church has in common with every other community is that it's made up of sinners. It's made up of people. And what do you know? They act like it sometimes. So if you've been sinned against the church, against If a church has sinned against you, uh, hurt you, if this church has sinned against you, I'm sorry. That is not your fault. You're not wrong to feel pain about that. Don't blame yourself. Blame the people who did it. Blame me if I did it. Talk to someone about it, please. Don't just stuff it and run away from it. I know it's painful. You shouldn't have to go through what you're going through, but talk to someone about it. If, if it's this, talk to us about it, talk to me about it, even if I'm the one who did it or we're the ones that did it. And my commitment to you is I will not respond to that with defensiveness, with shaming back at you. But whatever you do, don't let that experience stop you from believing in the Holy Spirit who dwells in his church. We don't confess our faith in the church. We don't say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church because I believe Christians are just such nice people and they always get it right. No, we believe in a Holy Catholic Church because we believe in the Holy Spirit who dwells in that people. And we believe he is powerful to build that church into something that is not currently. We have hope for that because of our faith in him. So as it's been said, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints, which, by the way, means that any of you here today would fit right in. The flaws of the church must be acknowledged. They must be talked about and exposed, especially when it's those in power, for the glory of Christ, for the good of his people. But they must not be exposed in a way that assumes that you have no flaws yourself. The church has problems. I have none. That's not true. Jackie Hill Perry is a poet, R&B artist, author, everything, uh, who also happens to be a Christian. And she has a song where she talks about the pain she's experienced at the hands of the church. And she admits in that song that sometimes she just wants to leave. But she says, uh, when she reflects on the church's flaws, this is what she says, the mirror showed me the same flaws in my own face. So do you see the flaws in your own face? I'm not saying they're the same as the things that were done against you, but we all have flaws. Before God, do you see them in your own face? If you do, come to him, this living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, and he will build you into a spiritual house with his people, flawed and imperfect as they are. No matter what your experience with the church has been, here's the thing you can't get past. You've got to deal with Jesus himself at some level. Are you going to come to him or are you going to run from him because of the church? And here's what you got to admit. Some of you, I'm not saying all of you, some of you you're talking about the church hurt, you're talking about the flaws of the church and that's not the real issue. The real issue is to be a part of a church, you would have to rearrange your life and you just don't want to do that. You got to be honest about that if that's you, okay? Because you can't come to the living stone and reject the spiritual house. You can't Say, I want Jesus, but I don't want his people. You can't say, I'm a living stone, but I'm not going to be put in that house. I'm going to stay off on my own. Pastor H.B. Charles puts it this way. Because if I'm saved, the Holy Spirit is in me and the Holy Spirit is in you. And the Holy Spirit in you is is not going to tell you not to have anything to do with the Holy Spirit in me. Does your connection to the church reflect this? Do you treat the church like your spiritual community? The other night, uh, it was my wife's birthday, and I took her to see a show at Philadelphia Orchestra. It was really cool, beautiful. I haven't been to the Kimmel Center before, beautiful building. Uh, we went, we took in a great performance. We saw someone we knew there, we talked to them. We got to know the guy that sat next to us, and then we left. And, you know, I don't know that I'll ever see that guy that sat next to us again. I'm okay with it if that doesn't happen. We—I don't know when we'll ever go back to the orchestra. You know, probably sometime next year. Next time we feel the urge, right? Is that how you interact with the church? It's how a lot of a lot of people interact with the church that way. It's a—it's a performance that I come to take. If I get something out of it, great. I'll come back next time I want it. I see some people. I say hi to them. That's not a community. That's a show, right? It's not what the church is. A community is more than that. A community is responsible for one another. When one member suffers, they all suffer. When one rejoices, they all rejoice. When one has a need, those with more come in to meet the need. If you've ever been a part of a healthy community, you know what that's like. If you're part of a healthy family, just think about what are the things healthy families do, right? And then do those things with your church community. Simple stuff. Who do you take to the airport? Whose kids do you watch? I I got to experience this recently, actually, in this church. Um, we we have a mold issue in our house and we think it's causing some allergic reaction in our son who's seven months old. And so last Sunday I was here in church and I talked to people afterwards and they said, hey, how you doing? And I let them know the situation, just pray for us. I can tell you that every person in this church that I told about that situation has offered for me to stay in their house. For me, my wife, and our seven-month-old son to just, just come live with us while that's happening. Now that's community. Come live with me not just come see a show with me. That's community. Those are the kinds of things that make the invisible unity we have in the Holy Spirit visible in our church community. And you can't tell me that that's not there. I know the flaws are there. They're very visible, They're very publicized. But you can't tell me that this unity in Christ isn't there because I've seen the visible form of it with my own eyes. Yous are a spiritual community, a communion of saints, invisibly united by the Spirit, through faith in the risen Christ. And as a result, yous also are a new community. Verse 9 addresses the believing community in this way. Yous are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now these are all terms that before the coming of Christ were applied to Israel, the nation that was God's people. But now Peter looks at the church and he says, that's who you are. The chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for his own. He's saying, yous are a new community in which the spirit dwells. Now we're going to talk a bit in a little bit about the priesthood part of that, but let's look at these other three terms for now. He, sa- he calls them a race, a nation, and a people. Now when you hear race in the Bible, don't think race the way we use it today. That's kind of a more recent <clears throat> social construct. I mean, you know, It's 400 years old probably, but recent compared to the Bible. And so when you see race in the Bible, when you see these terms, they probably correspond more closely to what we mean today when we talk about a culture, when we talk about a nation in which you're a citizen, when we talk about an ethnicity. So what this is saying is, are a culture, a nation, an ethnicity made up of people who before they came into it were part of different cultures, different nations, different ethnicities. Because verse 10 says, he looks at him and he says, once you were not a people, you were divided, but now you are a people. This is why the church is called Catholic in the creed. Uh, when people hear Catholic, they think Roman Catholic, but the word Catholic is just a Latin word for universal. Roman Catholic Church has kind of co-opted it and honestly misused it, but uh, it's, not, it's a good word in and of itself, because what it tells us is that the church is a community that transcends cultural, national, and ethnic boundaries, that brings people together who were not formally together. Because by nature, we all do this. We all naturally identify with people who look like us, people who share our culture, people who are citizens of the same nation, people who are, share our ethnicity. And as a result, these groups form And become occasions for oppression and for conflict. But in the church, those barriers are broken down. And a new culture, a new nation, a new citizenship in heaven, a new ethnicity, born of the Spirit, not of flesh, is created in that community. Now what that doesn't mean is that when you come into the church, you pretend that you're not a citizen of an earthly country. You just renounce that citizenship. You deny everything about your native culture. You pretend you don't have a race. You pretend that you don't have an ethnicity. You didn't descend from earthly parents. No. But what it is saying is that those things get demoted. Your most fundamental identity, who you are, what makes you you, is now that you're a Christian. And all those other things are secondary. So I'm white, in case you didn't notice. And <clears throat> I grew up in central Pennsylvania in kind of a you know American majority culture type context. Um, I still have a lot of friends that I interact with from there that I'm, I'm close with today. When we get together, we tell stories about stuff that happened 20 years ago, and we all laugh about it. My wife hangs out with us. She's like, I don't even know what you guys are talking about 90% of the time. It's someone's name she's never heard from middle school or something. Um, we can quote movies together. We all watch the same stuff, right? You know the line that I'm about to say, and we can do that back and forth. We listen to similar music. We like the same sports. So there's, there's bonds of community that that develops, right? Shared experiences, shared interests. But a lot of them aren't Christians, unfortunately. I wasn't for much of my life. Um, since moving to Philadelphia, I've had the opportunity, the privilege really, to interact with people from different countries, and even to meet people who grew up in America, but in cultures that were so different from mine that it might as well have been another country. So I was thinking about this in our church. Uh, I think of a lady named Eva, some of you know. Uh, she grew up in China. She grew up in a non-Christian family, and we just have nothing in common. Uh, we, don't, we haven't seen the same movies. We don't watch sports. You know, like, it just. We got nothing to talk about when we spend time together. But we've been in city groups together, our, our smaller communities here at City Light that meet throughout the week. And when I hear her talk about Jesus, And what he's doing in her life, and the ways she's being challenged, and the things that are hard for her—something in me just resonates. That I know him too. We've got that, and we're good friends as a result now. And there's a bond there that's more substantial, even more substantial than the one I have with these guys I grew up with, who I can't talk about those things with, who don't share those experiences. I think of a lady in our church named Shelby. She's a black woman from Baltimore, and. She, we grew up in the same country, but in a very different culture from the one that's native to me. But we serve on City Lights Racial Justice Advisory Council together. And when I hear her talk about how she wants to see God glorified through a diverse church, when I hear her confess her sins, something in me resonates with that. It comes alive and kind of I, I realize we have a more substantial bond actually than the bond that I have with guys I've known for 20 years who I don't share that with. That's what the Holy Spirit does when he brings people together who would otherwise be separate. Now that can be hard to really believe, right? Because for someone, like like for me, it's easy for me to talk to these guys I grew up with. I just fall back, I relax, it's simple. Especially if you're a majority culture person here in America, um, that's all around you. The, The mirror is always being held up. You see sameness all around you. And so it's easy to just gravitate towards sameness. And even if you're not a Christian, hey, I got more in common with them. It's easy. And to not experience the kind of deep fellowship with people who are culturally different from you that this passage says we have in the spirit. On the other hand, um, it's also a challenge for minorities. Because among minorities, there can be a kind of shared experience of suffering and of marginalization and oppression that also creates tight bonds. So uh, black members of our church have told me, like, you can... Black folks in America can bond with one another over shared experiences of marginalization, being mistreated by police, for example. Uh, Asians in our church have, have told me that they can bond with one another often over people not being able to pronounce their name even or not seeing their name in gift shops or having to change their names so silly white people like me can pronounce them. Um, these shared experiences create tight bonds, right? But what this passage is saying is that if you're a Christian, you have an experience that is shared with every other Christian, that forms a tighter bond even than the bonds of nationhood, shared culture, shared ethnicity can form. It's that you've been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, verse 9 says. Groups have sinned against other groups, and it's not equal in who's done that, right? There's kind of, in America, white majority culture that's had power and that has, uh, in various ways, sinned against minorities in this country. But all of us before God have walked in darkness, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your culture, whatever your um, nation, national citizenship just, just look up your ancestors, even if you don't know exactly where they came from. You know, it's St. Patrick's Day, so I was kind of getting in touch with my Irish ancestry. I got my green shirt on and everything. I was looking up uh, ancient Irish gods, and there's thousands of them, right? Uh, I don't know if there's thousands. There's hundreds at least. Um, what's the one's name that I found here? Uh, Baylor was one of the ones that my ancestors worshipped. A Latino, ancient Latino god, Kukulkan. African ancestors worshiped Shango, Asian ancestors, Shangti, and so on and so forth. Wherever you look, all of humanity walked in darkness since the first sin and worshiped false gods. But yous have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In America, our gods are called money, sex, and power. But yous have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God didn't have to do that. He could have just left you in the darkness. You chose it. But though you had not received mercy, you now have received mercy. You've been brought out of your ignorance and of all these false gods that we gave ourselves to that could never satisfy. And if you're a Christian, you've been brought to the one true God that you were made for, that every race, that every culture, that every tribe, that every ethnicity was made for. Now, if that's at the center of your life, if that's the defining reality of your life, you will find a more substantial bond with people of different cultures, people of different nationalities, people of different ethnicities who are Christians and share that experience with you, then you will find with people who look just like you and shared all your experiences. Now, doesn't our world need a community like that? Would that not be a breath of fresh air? I mean, we know our world is divided, right? We know groups are fighting against one another, but what if there was a community that lived that thought, that voted, that spent their money, that made their decisions, with the other in mind, with the community that's not like them in mind. Because now that other is not another but a brother. Because now they've been made one by the Holy Spirit who dwells in them. That's what happens in the church. That's what this passage is telling us. Not in a kind of kumbaya, we all get together and say, isn't it great that we're all together type thing? in a way that requires repentance, hard conversations, a dealing with the issues that have divided us, but in a way that is real and substantial nonetheless. It's possible because we all have this shared experience of being called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And furthermore, it's possible because we all have a shared purpose. We are a gathered community. So verse 9 not only tells yous who yous are, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It tells yous why yous are. Why did God create from a people who were not a people, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession? Verse 5, why is it that as we come to him, he isn't just making living stones, he's making a spiritual house. It's not just so you'll no longer be in the darkness. It's not just a get out of hell free card. It's not just, even, so that you can have wealth, health, and safety. God's purposes for your life, God's purposes for his church are far greater than to give you a comfortable life here on earth. He's up to something bigger. What is it? Verse 5 says, he's made us into a spiritual house to be something, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What's all this talk of priesthood? Um, The priesthood before the coming of Christ, priests were appointed to represent men before God, to represent men and women before God. And what they did is they offered an animal sacrifice on behalf of the people to God. They served God on behalf of the people, offered this animal sacrifice because humans, because we were in darkness, could only approach God if our sins were paid for. And so the animal was offered as a sign of the payment for sin. This is what I deserve. But now that Jesus Christ has come, He has come as our perfect high priest who represents us before the Father and offers not an animal sacrifice, but offers himself as a sacrifice in our place. So that now, you don't need a priest here on earth to represent you before the Father. You have a high priest, Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, who represents you before the Father. And you no longer need to offer an animal sacrifice. The sacrifice has been offered And now you offer a spiritual sacrifice of rejoicing and thanksgiving for the sacrifice that Christ has offered in your place. If you're a Christian, not only are you a saint, you're a priest. If you're a Christian, you've been called into the priesthood. You're a priest today. I, as the pastor of this church, am not the one that has been set aside to serve God on your behalf. You have his spirit living in you, And you offer service to God yourself through Jesus Christ, your high priest, directly, not going through me, but going directly to him. So verse 9 says, The reason you exist as a community is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's not the only spiritual sacrifice that the church is to offer. Really, a spiritual sacrifice is anything. You do a service to God. But it is the one this passage focuses on. It says the reason you exist is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now proclaiming. Proclaiming means what it sounds like. It's opening your mouth and saying the excellencies of God. People try to get too spiritual with this stuff. They say, why let my life do the proclaiming? You know, or Preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. Okay, that's like cute sounding and spiritual, but it's not what the word means. <laughs> the word proclaim means you say something, right? You use words. And he's saying, use as a community exists to do that, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It also doesn't mean just that you go do that as an individual. Because if that was all it meant, God wouldn't have had to create a community to do that. He said, "Just you, you become a living stone, you go out and proclaim. You become a living stone, you go out and proclaim. But God's making a house. God says, "Hey, I'm creating a nation, a community, that together you might proclaim the excellencies. That not only you, but yous might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Which means that we must be a gathered community. This must be something that we do together. Use, exist, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, you just can't do that from the comfort of your couch. You can't do that by listening to a sermon online. No offense to the online listeners who are, yeah, hearing this in their time, I guess. Not right now, but whenever, they're driving or something. We put our sermons online. We're happy to provide that, but You're not proclaiming the excellencies of God with God's people if that's your only interaction with the church. That's your primary interaction with the church even. You can't do it alone in your room, even with a Bible and with prayer, as indispensable as those things are. You're not proclaiming the excellencies of God with his people when you do that. The only way you do this is if you rearrange your life to get in the same room with other Christians and to proclaim his excellencies together. You need a community to do it. We do this thing on Sunday morning for that very reason. We come together to proclaim his excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light because we believe he is excellent. We believe he's worthy of it. And he's, wor- he's so excellent that he's worthy not just of the proclamation of his excellencies from a bunch of scattered individuals, but of a community of people from different cultures, from people from different ethnicities, people of different nations coming together and together proclaiming His Excellencies with one another. Now that's the kind of purpose that can actually bring people together. One of the challenges in our world today is everybody wants unity, right? They say let's diversity's good, we want diversity, we want to get people we don't like it when people fight each other, so let's get them into the same room and let's all get along. The problem is thriving communities. Never thrive because people say, I want to have a thriving community. Let's all get together. Why? So we can be together. Well, what do you want to do? I want to just be together. That doesn't, that sounds nice. It doesn't actually work. People get together when there's something bigger that they're all living for that unites them. When people are captivated by God, when they go from darkness to light, and their purpose in life now is to proclaim his excellencies, they'll work through national boundaries. They'll work through cultural boundaries. They'll work through ethnic boundaries because their bigger purpose is to proclaim his excellencies. And they know, God, you get more glory when all these different groups come together in the same room. You don't have to take my word for it. Just look at history. I'll give you one example. My wife and I uh, went to Kenya seven years ago because her parents worked there internationally before she was born. And they did all kinds of things there. They did uh, help start Uh, schools, they did agricultural development, they helped get medical things going, but they also planted churches. And they worked among two tribes that had historically been warring tribes. Uh, They had beef with each other, to use the American term. And these two Maasai and Lua were the name of the tribes. When we went uh, seven years ago, which is about 25, 30 years after they had lived there, we went to churches where these two warring tribes were in the same room worshiping Jesus together something had happened in their lives that made them want to proclaim the excellencies of God, so much so that they would get into the same room and break down the dividing walls with those they had historically had the beef with. As we come to him to worship him, a community forms. We are built up into this spiritual house, and that's why this gathering is such a central part of our life together as a church. That's what we do when we come together on Sunday mornings, we proclaim His excellencies together. It's why so many of you serve behind the scenes in ways nobody sees to make this gathering a possibility, to make it as glorifying to God as we have the power to do in our limited abilities and our limited nature. And I know it can be difficult at times um, to see the value of that. Like sometimes people ask, you know, "Hey, I want to get involved in the church. How could I serve in the church?" And we'll tell them about opportunities to help make this service a reality. And we'll get a response kind of like, oh, okay. Um, I was, I was kind of looking for something, you know, like important. Um, this is important, <laughs> right? This is, I mean, this passage, take this for what, what it says. It's saying we exist as a community to do this, to gather and proclaim his excellencies together. Not the only thing we exist to do, but man, it sure is important. It sure is pointed out. And I know that can be hard to remember when you're serving. You know, like our sound guys. Our sound guys must get up at four or five in the morning to get here, and they're here all day. Um, I imagine when that alarm goes off, the first thing that pops into your mind isn't proclaiming the excellencies of God today. Like it can, you can lose sight of that, but don't. Okay. What happens when we gather is we proclaim the excellencies of God, and He deserves it. He is worthy of it. We're gathered community finally user ascent community. So not only does the church gather for worship, the church is sent into the world. Verse 11 calls us sojourners and exiles. It's saying you're a community that doesn't belong to the world. You're not the same. You're a sojourner, you're an exile in this place. This new nation doesn't belong to the world. And yet, we're sent into the world. So what do we do? It says abstain from passions of the flesh, verse 11 that wage war against your soul. Saying there's desires you have in your sinful nature that not only should you not act on, you should abstain from the desires themselves. You're living for something fundamentally different than the world around you is living for. And at the same time, verse 12 says that you should live among the Gentiles. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Instead of acting on the sinful nature, live honorably among the Gentiles, which means seclusion is not an option for the church. The church is not the community you come into to be safe from the world, to be sheltered from the world, to not have to go out into the world. The church is a community sent into the world. I, I feel a need to talk about this because of St. Patrick's Day. Uh, St. Patrick is not the patron saint of alcohol. Uh, he's, he, he actually loved Jesus and uh, would have definitely not loved drunkenness and was sent by the Spirit, called by the Spirit to take the gospel to the Irish people. He was the first one to preach the gospel in the lands that we now call Ireland. And one of the things he did that was kind of innovative in the history of missions is he went with a team. He took a community with him because that's what the church is supposed to be. The church is to be a sent community that lives life among the Gentiles. Now, what does that look like for us today here in America, here in Philadelphia? Well, think about the places in your life where you are among the Gentiles. And if you don't have those places, find some. But think about the places where you are. Most of you do. Go to work, right? Like if you, if you have a job, you probably are around a lot of people who aren't part of gospel preaching churches. What does it look like to live a scent life there? You abstain from gossip, from envy, from jealousy, from rivalry, and you live in a way that honors your boss, that speaks well of them, that treats your coworkers and clients with dignity that is diligent in your work. In your marriages, you abstain from the desire to have your spouse meet all of your needs and instead seek to be used by God to increase their joy. In your parenting, you abstain from the desire to control your kids or to passively disengage from your kids, and you raise them instead in the discipline and instruction of Christ without being harsh with them. In your singleness... You abstain from sexual immorality and use the increased flexibility that that season of life or that life as a whole provides you in order to serve those who have less of it rather than just using it to increase your own pleasure. Now, if you live like that, it's in hope that as verse 12 says, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do You see how that could happen? First, that they would speak against you as an evildoer. If you really abstain from the passions of the flesh, if you really live differently, people around you aren't doing that. They're going to look at you a little funny. They're going to call you the religious nut. They're going to say, oh, you're one of those Christians. You know, this is is the one a lot of Christians get. They'll swear around you, and then they'll say, I'm sorry. It's really okay. Like, I can handle it, (laughs) you know? Um, But you'll be labeled, right? You'll be that guy in the office. Okay. But you know what else they'll say about you? Man, she really works hard. She seems to have kind of a a peace about her, a a positivity that, man, I feel like I don't have. Now, if somebody were to see that in multiple people, and they all happen to be Christians, they saw a community living like that, might they not start to wonder, what makes you different? And that's your opportunity to declare the excellency of God to them. God uses that to call people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Think about how you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. wasn't part of it that you saw a community of people who were different. most cases it is. I mean, God can save people however he wants. But this passage is telling us that God uses the community sent into the world who are abstaining from the flesh and living honorable lives to do that very thing. If you're never criticized, if no one ever speaks evil of you, if no one ever speaks evil of our church, it probably means that we're not actually abstaining from the passions of the flesh. It probably means we've assimilated and we're just living like the world around us. On the other hand, if we're only ever criticized, if you're only ever criticized, and if our church is only ever criticized, and nobody actually sees good deeds, nobody actually glorifies God, nobody's converted, it probably means we're not living sent lives. We're not living among the Gentiles. We've become an an embittered and embattled minority that's just hunkering down and keeping to itself. It's not an option for the church. The church is a community sent to live among the Gentiles. We gather for worship. To declare his excellencies, we go out into the world in hope that more would come to join us and proclaim his excellencies with us. And therein lies the problem. Behind all of our objections to the church, behind our desire to just have a community that's like us, behind our aversion to gathering and our desire for everything to be catered to our needs and our schedule and our interests, behind our uh, giving in to the passions of the flesh, or are living a secluded life away from the Gentiles, is just a pretty low concern that the excellencies of God be proclaimed. That God get the glory that he deserves. There's just a lot more important stuff in most of our lives, if we're honest, in how we live. But you have been called out of that darkness, and into his marvelous light, to something better, to a purpose in life far bigger. Because... Jesus Christ so loved the glory of God that though he was the light of the world, he went to the cross and for three hours the sky was dark and black as he bore the judgment of God in your place so that rising from the dead to newness of life, his spirit might come upon you and deliver you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, if you know him, if you believe in him, that should fill you with a sense of his excellency and fill you with the desire to proclaim that excellency and to see others do it as well. Believe in him and believe in his holy Catholic church, the communion of saints that he died and rose again to create. Believe in the church. Join one. Treat it like it's your community, even with people who are different from you within it. Gather with them to proclaim his excellencies. Go out into the world to abstain from the passions of the flesh and live honorable lives, so that in hope that others might see your good deeds and join you in proclaiming his excellencies forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we um, worship you and proclaim your excellency this morning. You are the creator of all races, cultures, ethnicities, Lord, nations. You reign and rule over all. And though we were in darkness... By the power of your Holy Spirit, by the death and resurrection of your Son, you have called us out of that darkness and into your marvelous light. God, we confess that we um, tend to just want what works for us. And being a part of a community, uniting ourselves to a community scares us, Lord. Help us, we pray. Help us to live in the community in which we are truly a part if we have trusted in you and if we belong to Christ. Build us up, Lord, as we come to you into this spiritual house compel us to proclaim your excellencies together and use us out in the world that more would proclaim your excellencies with us. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. As I mentioned, uh, the church is a community across uh, national boundaries and cultural boundaries. And therefore, as one part suffers, the whole part suffers with them. So I've asked a member of our church, Maria Avarado, to share something with us today. Maria, would you come up front? Uh, Maria is a native of the country of Venezuela uh And there's currently a lot of pain and suffering going on in Venezuela, and even we're trying to figure out ways to get aid to Venezuela, but part of the problem is that the leader there is blocking a lot of the aid and so what I've asked Maria to do is just to share with us what's going on in her country so that we can mourn with them and so that we can take time this morning to pray with them So Maria, go ahead oh, I'll get you a microphone <clears throat> Good
1: morning. My name is Maria, and I'm grateful with Mike to share with all of you what is going on in my country. My, uh, my husband and my oldest son and me are from Venezuela. And six years ago, we left our country, leaving family, friends, church, and everything back. Four years ago, we came to USA with two bags and little money to start a new life and help our people back home. I will try to be brief, but this is 20 years of injustice and pain that our people currently are going through. And the situation might be even worse since the dictatorship that governs the country is keeping isolated the people from the rest of the world from the reality going on. But two weeks ago, Venezuela suffered and is suffering the consequences after the worst blackout ever in history. The whole country was left more than 70 hours without power due to lack of maintenance and staff to make the work done, since more than the 40% of the country have left to go and pursue, and pursue better living in other countries. The aftercome of this tragedy was the death of more than 150 newborns and 300 adults in only one hospital in one major city of Venezuela. And even, and I know, and even more, they have passed away in, in other parts of Venezuela. Only that the order from the president was not to reveal numbers, or they were lose their jobs. <sighs> Sorry. Mind you that there's no access to basic food or cash or nothing. So whatever people had at home went bad, and they couldn't buy anything either because there was no cash or without electricity. How can you purchase stuff? Now they have to live 12 hours daily without power just to prevent another blackout. There's no more clean water because the machine that the machine got damaged after so many hours without working. And that's the day-by-day, day, a surviving situation over Venezuela. And the people daily dying because there's no medicine or kids just having to eat once a day or nothing at all because everything is under control by the government, kind of like Cuba. Nobody does nothing, or at least not as fast for my human eyes. And everything we can do, Venezuelans, is just believe that our God, our good God, is allowing this for a bigger, better purpose, even if we don't see it yet. Some ways you can pray for our people in our country is to have them get peace in the middle of this situation and that there will be no more death and that ultimate God reveal himself and justice is made against all these persons that have robbed over years and destroyed our country.
0: Thanks for that, Maria. Let's take a moment now to pray. You can join me silently in your seats. Heavenly Father, um, we confess once again that we believe in you God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we believe that you are good. And yet, Lord, uh, we once again see how different our world is from the way you made it to be. God, we pray that you would uh, dispossess Maduro of power in Venezuela. We pray that this ruler would no longer be able to uh, carry out his injustices and his selfish schemes, preventing the people of his country from getting the care and the help that they so desperately need. God, so just restrain him, remove him, do whatever you have to do, Lord. We pray ultimately for his repentance, that you would lead him to Christ and soften his heart. But short of that, Lord, we just pray that you would stop him. And we pray that um, you would open the borders for relief and aid to be able to get in, and that you would bring development to that country that would enable them to um, use the resources that you've given them and distribute them to the people who so desperately need them, Lord. God, um, we pray that you would be with your people there. If in uh, reasons unclear to us, you do allow this suffering to continue, Lord, we pray that you would not, um, that you would strengthen their faith and nourish them, that their hope would not falter, that their hope would be set firmly on the salvation to come and the inheritance that is kept for us in heaven, where every tear will be wiped away, where where no one will be hungry, where all the injustices will be judged, where our sins will be forgiven, and where we will be enjoying your presence forever. So God, sustain your church there. And we pray your blessing on the churches of Venezuela, that you would use them to provide for the needs of their community that they are a part of. Use whoever, Lord, to get food, to get shelter, to get safety into the lives of the people of Venezuela. Lord, put an end to their suffering, we pray, and set our hope fully on the day when all suffering will be eradicated. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.